The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. morning, I, I know that we generally 
at this time of the year, our minds are drawn out toward the, the cross. And this morning, I, I want to talk about that, but I want to take us to a, a moment in, in time, in history, that occurred immediately prior to Jesus going to the cross. And it's a couple of verses found in Matthew chapter 27. In verse, uh, we'll begin with verse 6. Matthew 27 and verse 6. And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. I want to preach to you this morning about the potter's field. About the potter's field. I, I got to admit to you, it's a very tender subject with me. It's one that often brings me to tears because sometimes I haven't always focused too much upon the potter's field, but, but we need to talk about the potter's field first to understand what it is. Now today, today, let's talk about what a potter's field is today. In our day, it's the place where the anonymous dead are, are buried by the authorities that are in charge of that. If someone dies in our county, there's actually Alabama Code section 38-8-2 says that upon the decease of any person having no estate, leaving no relatives in the county with the ability or estate adequate to defray the necessary burial expenses, such necessary burial expenses are a charge upon the county in which such death shall take place in the county commission upon the presentation of the account of such burial expenses shall make payment therefore. Someone dies in our county and we don't know who they are and we don't know where they came from and we don't know who their family is and no one comes to claim the body. That person is buried by the county. Now we don't have a specific area or specific cemetery necessarily in each county that is designated for the burial of indigents, but some places do in fact. Most states do have such a place, and New York City is a good example. I want to read you the headlines from an article in May of 2018. It's called, this article was entitled, A Rare Look at New York City's Potter's Field, Home to One Million Dead. It's a, it's a, 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 a cemetery that's located on a place called Hart Island, which is an island, a little small island just off the coast of the Bronx, and it's operated by the New York City Department of Corrections. What happens is prisoners who are serving time can volunteer for graveyard duty, for potter's field duty. And they go and they will take sometimes as many as a thousand people a year die in New York City that don't have relatives or they don't know who they are. They die an anonymous, friendless death. And the quote in here, it says, when, in that article, when no one claims a dead person or is too poor to pay for a funeral, they're often sent here. There's another headline that was in the same year, but is a different month, a different article. It was, it was called this. The headline said, Dead of AIDS and Forgotten in Potter's Field. I think that that's probably the most sad subject that I've ever thought about. Can you imagine what it would be like to die and nobody care about you. Nobody claim your body. Nobody left that is able 
to call you a brother or a son or a father. That's what happens in the potter's fields of this, of this time. That's what a potter's field is called. And the reason it's called potter's field is because of the verse that we just read to you. Because what happened here is that Judas, we jumped into the middle of a story here, in the middle of an account of what happened, of what's leading up to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think I have to tell you Bible readers that, that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And back in verse 3 here, once Judas saw what had happened, it says that he repented himself. Well, let me back up. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And that's the money that they took. And they said, you know, we can't use this in the temple because it's blood money. Let's, uh, let's go buy the potter's field. Now, what was this potter's field in G before Jesus' day? The potter's field referred, it's referred to as the field Acheldama. A-C-E-L-D-A-M-A. It's in Acts 1 and verse 18. And that literally is a Hebrew term for the field of blood. It's located in the valley of Hinnom. And, and before this point, or at this point in time, it was a place where potters went to get clay for their pottery. It was, it was no good for growing crops. It was a clay field. If you were a potter in that day, or you had any affiliation with a potter, maybe you were an apprentice or a family member, you would have probably enjoyed going out to this field, to this potter's field, to find the right kind of clay, the right color clay, the right quality or, or consistency of clay to get the raw materials for your project. That's what it was in Jesus' day. Now, what it was after this point, what it was starting on this day, the day of crucifixion, was something else. You remember, as we said, the, the blood price for Jesus, for his head, was found back in Matthew 26, just a page or two over, in verse 14. I'll just read it so that we'll see it here together. Matthew 26 and 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. That's the 30 pieces of silver that were brought, that Judas brought back and cast down in the temple. And that's called in verses 6 and 7, the blood money. It is the price of blood. It is the price of blood. And it was called from that point forward, the field of blood. Not just the potter's field anymore, but Aceldama, Aceldama, however that's pronounced. And, and, and that literally, it was called the field of blood. From that point forward, if anyone wanted to go, say, go out there and get me some clay, they wouldn't say the potter's field. They'd say, go to the field of blood and get it. So, the, the, so from this moment, the, the, the field that had formerly enjoyed, no doubt, a pleasant reputation as the source of the raw materials for the beauty of the potter's wheel became the place where the hopeless and the friendless were laid to rest. They took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. The place where the sculpting artist, the potter, 
got his clay, became a dark and dismal field where the bodies of the forlorn and forsaken were laid. Isn't that interesting? Going from being a place of great value, you might say, a place that was worth something in that day, to a place where all the outcasts were placed and laid to rest. Well, that's the character of the potter's field. That's what it was. That's the definition of it. But let's look at something else this morning as we remember this is the day of crucifixion that we're talking about. See, there was a cost. There was a cost to the potter's field. There was a cost. There was a cost to Judas. It cost him the 30 pieces of silver that he threw away. But, but really, it cost him much more than this. He cast down the 30 pieces of silver and he went and he hanged himself. More details, graphic details are given in Acts chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, that's a uh, uh, little more than, than what we want to know, really, it seems like. It says in verse 18, Peter's talking here. He said, now this man, speaking of Judas, purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out and it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Aceldama, that is to say, the field of blood. <laughs> you know, he goes on to say that it's the prophecy about Judas Verse 20, it's written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another take. Judas was counted as one of the apostles, one of the 12. But Now, I, let me just say this. There's always a debate of was Judas a child of God or wasn't he? I, I happen to believe he wasn't, but I'm not going to argue with you about that. Uh, it's, uh, uh, there's a lot, I think, to support that. But regardless of that, look at the cost to him. Look at the cost to him in this life even of what happened uh, uh, in the purchase of the potter's field. Now, I believe he was remorseful, but not truly repentant. He got caught, in other words. He got caught and he knew uh, that he was now facing some, some things that he shouldn't be. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man goeth as it was written of him, but woe unto that man whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Satan had entered into Judas. Satan had taken him over. Oh, what a cost. What a cost to Judas. But you know, there's also a cost to the Pharisees. Notice that when Judas came to, to them, notice he said, I've sinned, verse 4, and that I've betrayed the innocent blood. And look at their response. I, I want you to, now, whether Judas was a child of God or not, okay, forget about that issue. That's not what I want to preach on this morning. And I don't think we could prove that either way anyway. Brother Buddy and I are the two ordained preachers here at this church and of course we have others John Morgan and that are that are exercising and, and, and we and have a call to the ministry but think about me or brother buddy uh, one of you comes to us and says and says preacher I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood now you know I'm not Again, the issue is not whether you're a child of God or not because we don't know. We don't know. We believe you are. <laughs> and if one of you came to us, I would have full confidence that, that you are a child of God. But if somebody on the street came up to me and said, I know you're a preacher. I've heard about you. And I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Can you imagine, Brother Buddy or I, saying to them, what's that to me? What's that to me? You go take care of that. That's on you, buddy. That's what these Pharisees said to him. That's what these priests 
said to him. They, he didn't just come to the Pharisaical people. These were the chief priests and elders. They were the ones that had the, the oracles of God. That talked about the mercy of God. And, and salvation that is, a, that is bound up in the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't understand all that yet. But they certainly didn't get it. They, they had gotten into the ritual and the rote of the law. And that's all they were following. And they did not care anymore about the realities and the sincerities and the deep things of someone's heart. They only cared about, cared about keeping up the appearances. Judas comes and he says, he says, hey, I've sinned. If you come to me... And I ever tell you, go take care of it yourself. Please fire me as your pastor. I don't think you'd have to because I believe the Lord would. Okay? <clears throat> See, these, these Pharisees had no concept of what, had no, not, did not have the right focus. And we're not focusing on what they should have been focused on. Sinner can't take care of his sins anyway. <laughs> and on the, it's, I find it ironic that on the very day that the sins of God's people were being paid for, the Pharisees said, hey, buddy, that's on you. That's on you. And they said, we can't spend this money after he left because it wouldn't look right. It's blood money. You know, Jesus spoke to them about that. Let me just say to you, it's, it's important that you not only be righteous, but that you appear righteous, Okay. But don't fall into the trap of just wanting to appear righteous. You know, I often, I often uh, sin when it doesn't, um, I, and I think, well, it doesn't matter because I didn't get caught, you know. Boy, I, I, I hate sinning, but I hate getting caught, <laughs> you know. You ever notice that? I, boy, I, I don't want to sin. Oh, I feel so bad. But, oh, no, somebody caught me. I'm, now I'm really feeling bad about it, you see. That ought not be that way. We ought to feel bad about it. Anyway, but because, uh, but notice what Jesus said to him in chapter 23 of Matthew and verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. There, thou blind Pharisee, cleanse thou first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. And then he goes on to say, call them whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, he says in verse 28, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Jesus pronounces a woe upon them. <clears throat> now, no doubt, in the estimation of the Jews and many of the others living around them in that day, they were looked upon and thought of highly. They were thought of highly. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus says, woe unto you. Listen, when Jesus, when the world says go, but Jesus says woe, you better say ho. Oh. <laughs> oh, I better stop. Something's wrong. I need to make a change, okay? You see, these Pharisees also paid a price, but it was a spiritual price. It's also, in, in some sense, I don't want to get off too, too deep into this, but I will tell you this, that from the moment of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ forward, all of the blessings that had to, hithertofore been, been poured out upon the Jews, you saw the Lord as, as if he abandoned them. Man, they had, they had experienced the 
political blessings. They had, they had actually been their own nation for the two or 300 years before the Christ was born. And up until about 90, 80 or 90, 100 years before when Pompey, Pompey the Great from Rome came in and took over, uh, basically he, he, uh, uh, they went to him <laughs> in a sense and he, he propped up the, the winning uh, faction in, in Israel. And from that point forward, they became a, a Roman province. And ultimately in AD 70, the, the soon-to-be emperor Titus surrounded, well, actually it started in about 66 or 67, I believe 68 AD. The siege of Jerusalem began and ultimately the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And then again in AD about 166, they had another uprising. But what you see here is the destruction of the Jews as a nation. You see that. Oh, there was a cost. There was a cost. But... <clears throat> We need to understand all of that about what the potter's field is and the cost of it and all that before we get to the next most important point of the message, which is I want you to see this morning the Christ of the potter's field. The Christ of the potter's field. You remember what we said, and I know you know this because you're a Bible student. Remember what we said about the, the price that Judas was paid for Jesus to betray him? 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. In Exodus chapter 21 and verse 32, speaking of a ox that gores, that is known to gore people and things and what the price would be, Moses is setting out basically the law. It's as if we would go to court today and there would be a preset amount of damages that would be awarded for these actions. And here's what he says in Exodus 21 and verse 32. If the ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, that is a slave, if the ox shall push a slave, then the owner of the ox shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. You realize what that means, beloved, that Jesus' price to men, to the Pharisees, was the price of a slave. It was the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. How shameful, how shameful that the king of kings was valued no more than a slave. How shameful is that, but how glorious is that? Because as we're going to see, beloved, he paid the price for slaves. He paid the price for slaves. His price was the price of a slave. And that price, by the way, was prophesied by God. As we didn't read this, but back in Matthew 27, after they said, we're going to go buy the field of blood, we're going to buy the potter's field, and it'll be called the field of blood. In verse 9, it says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. That's what they say. This is what... This is the value they placed upon him, no more than the price of a slave, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Now, let me just say this, not to get off in the weeds here, but if you go and read the book of Jeremiah, you will not read these, this quote anywhere in the book of Jeremiah. You will actually read it in the book of Zechariah. And people make a big deal about that. They say, well, see there, the Bible's wrong. Here it is, it's wrong. Because he misquoted here, said it was Jeremiah, but it was really Zechariah. Notice that, you know, if we read the words here, we'll get, we'll get a full understanding. It didn't say, then was fulfilled that which was written by Jeremy the prophet, did it? 
It said, then fulfilled was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet spoke it, and no doubt it was handed down through oral tradition that finally Zechariah wrote it down. <laughs> it doesn't say there is no conflict here. Zechariah wrote it down. That's what he says in Zechariah. I'm not going to turn there, but Zechariah chapter 11 and verses 12 and 13. But I'll tell you what Jeremiah did do. And I love this, this passage in Jeremiah chapter 18. We're talking this morning about the potter's field. But Jeremiah took us down to the potter's house. And I want you to look with me in chapter 18. Chapter 18 of Jeremiah in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying... Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. And he says, Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Oh, my goodness. What a, what a type of, the, of, of Adam and us. What a type of... Of, of the vessel that was made initially perfect and became marred by sin. And it says, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. And I notice, by the way, what, what happened here. He didn't say that the potter marred it. It was marred in his hand. But the potter made it again as seemed good to him. Praise God for that. I'm so thankful I don't believe that God predestinated Adam to fall in the garden. I'm so thankful that that's not the truth. God didn't cause Adam to sin. God, God didn't cause you to sin. God didn't make you a sinner. You know, you hear this all the time, people fussing about to God, saying, Lord, why did you make me this way? God didn't make you that way. Adam made you that way, okay? Have you got problems in your life? I've got problems. I'm sick. I have illnesses. There are people that are, are struggling. Uh, I know with some tribulations and trials and, and people say, Lord, why did you send this my way? Why did you put this on me? Why did you make me this way? The answer is God didn't make you that way. Adam made you that way. Let's lay the blame where the blame is deserved. For as by one man sin entered into this world and death by sin. Not by one God, by one man. And death by sin. And death passed upon all. Why do people, die? the Lord took him. You know, we say that often, don't we? We say, well, I'm so, the Lord took him. You know, if somebody dies, the Lord took him. Well, there's a sense in which that's true. I'm not arguing with that. The Lord is always there. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. You know, why did, why did, Lord, why did you take my daddy? Why did you take my son? Why did you take my brother? Why did you take my wife? Well, the answer is God is not the cause of death. God doesn't, God hates death as much as I do. In fact, he calls it an enemy. He calls it an enemy. We die because we are sinners and sin brought death. You want to know why people die? It's because of Adam, not because of God. But praise God here. Jeremiah's telling us about some marred vessels that God remade has seemed good to him. And you know, it may also, verses 9 and 10 there, it also reminds me of the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. Let's just turn there for a minute. I, I, I don't have time to go through the whole book of Jeremiah, but just, just suffice it. Let's, let's give it. Let me give you just a quick overview, okay? Jeremiah is one of the, one of the saddest. I, I'm so glad I'm not Jeremiah. <laughs> He's called the weeping prophet. 
He prophesied, you know, some of the prophets, you know, Daniel got to go into the captivity and he had a pretty good life. Over They had some struggles, but overall he had a pretty good life. Jeremiah had a horrible life. <laughs> he was just constantly moping around Israel and, and, and lam- he wrote the book of Lamentations for heaven's sake. The, 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 the crying and the weeping, uh, he's called the weeping prophet because of that. He had all kinds of problems. He never got... Uh, it, he never, it never worked out for Jeremiah, okay? He was always being thrown in prison. And he was being thrown in prison for telling the truth to the leaders of Israel. And this was the truth in his day. He said, you get ready, the judgment's coming. The Babylonians are coming down, and they're going to take you captive. And you're going to be there 70 years. That was the message. Can you imagine if, I, you know, if we went up and said, hey, uh, to, to Washington, and said, hey, the Russians are coming. And they're going to take us captive. And you might as well go ahead and, and pass a joint resolution in Congress agreeing uh, to let the Russians come in and take us over. You know, that, that wouldn't fly very well. They'd probably call me a traitor, wouldn't they? Well, that's what they called Jeremiah. But listen, that was the word of God. That was the will of God for them because of all their sins and all their apostasy. It was time that judgment fall. And Jeremiah said, you might as well submit to it. If you do, it'll be better for you. But they threw him in jail. They threw him in the dungeon. And over the 32nd chapter, you know, that sounds pretty bleak, right? But, but now listen, listen to this in the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. Right in the middle of the time when the king of Babylon's army is coming to besiege Jerusalem. It says, verse 6, The word of the Lord came unto me, this is Jeremiah, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. And then we read in verse 8 that sure enough, just like the Lord said, the uncle or the uncle's son came. In verse 9 it says, And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And he goes on to talk about the legal things that he did to show them the evidence of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court. <laughs> and then he says, as you, as, you, as you continue reading about it, what you find is, is that... Um, Let's see, in verse 30, let's see, verse 13, he says, Thus saith, verse 14, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, take the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, now listen to this, this is a, des- a land that's about to be desolated by the judgment of God. But here's what God says. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. You know what God's telling him there? Now listen, judgment has fallen, and it is falling. But you go buy this field, and you possess it, because it ain't all over for you. All hope's not lost. Oh, it looks like a potter's field. It may have been the very field, I don't know. It may have been the very potter's field that is under consideration in Matthew 27, but God promised that He would renew it one day, and He did. Seventy years later, they came back and they possessed that land. I believe that's a reference to that. And, and I want to tell you, the price that was prophesied by God here was fulfilled in Matthew 27. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing? If you don't believe the, 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 scriptural, the Scripture story of Jesus for any other reason, you've got to believe it because of all the Scriptures that were absolutely fulfilled. I couldn't do that. 
These men, different men from different eras, from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different levels of education, and yet there's, there's some, I forget, hundred or more prophecies in the Old Testament that were absolutely fulfilled by the life and death and burial of Jesus. And then, as we talk about the Christ of the potter's field, let me just, let me just say this. Remember where we are in Matthew 27. The very next verse, after, it's verse 11, after verse 10 says, And Jesus stood before the governor. The storm clouds of Calvary are gathering this very day. And they are about to go before Pilate, who had the absolute power of life and death. And he's going to give his own people a choice. You know, one of the reasons I don't believe in choice-based salvation is because we make the wrong choice every time. They're going to have a choice between an instigator of rebellion who had murdered people and a man who did all things well. They're going to have a choice between a criminal and one who was the Christ, who was the perfect Son of God, who had no basis for any judgment whatsoever. And what do they say? Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And when asked what to do with Christ, he says, let him be crucified. They say unto him all, it says, let him be crucified. And even the governor of the Romans who cared not for God nor man said, what evil has he done? I, I find no fault in this man. And yet he had him condemned to death. And, and Jesus is about to pay the price that was more precious than all the goods that this world has to hold. The price of the potter's field, it, it, you might say. The price paid at Calvary the price that was more expensive than anything you've ever desired in your little uh, sinful heart. You think about the one thing you want more than anything else. You think about that bass boat or that motor home or that big mansion or whatever you may think about it that it may be. There's nothing that has ever been paid. There's no price ever been paid that is expensive as the price that was paid at Calvary for the sins of his people. You're going to continue reading here. We don't have time this morning, but if you continue reading, we've already said he was rejected of men. We see in, uh, as we continue reading down in verses 26 through 31 that he was beaten and mocked and scourged. And scourged doesn't mean whipped a little bit. That means a, sort of like a cat of nine tails with little pieces of, uh, of metal woven into the lashes on the, uh, on the whip, slashed across his back so much so that he says in one place that the plowers have plowed furrows upon my back. He tells us in the 55th Psalm, I believe it is, or the 55th chapter of Isaiah, his countenance. You know, we, we see these beautiful pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross. People, artists make these. Listen to me. You wouldn't have wanted to see. I, I believe one of the reasons the Lord turned out the lights on that day is it was so ugly to see. It was so horrible to see. It says his countenance was so marred more than any man's. I've seen some countenances that were marred. I've seen some dead bodies in my job that were in terrible shape, but there's never been one tortured to the extent that the Lord Jesus Christ was. Remember what he said in Psalm 22, thou canst tell all my bones. In other words, that's a counting term. You can count my bones. You could count his ribs as he pushed himself up 
to breathe. You know, on the cross in, in a crucifixion, you usually don't die of blood loss. You die of suffocation because you have your, uh, uh, you have your hands uh, uh, nailed to the, to the tree, to the cross beam, and you have your feet nailed to the, uh, to the beam that's going up. And every time you go to take a breath, you have to push yourself up. And eventually they would break your legs so you couldn't do that and you would suffocate. And I can just see in my mind's eye the Lord, the precious Lord, the precious Lamb of God, pushing himself up to breathe and being able to count the ribs that are on his body because of all the torture he had suffered. Yes, he's about to suffer horribly and pay the most expensive price, but that's not the worst part of it. That's not the worst part of it. That's bad. And I believe he was tortured more than any man has ever been tortured in this life. And it says he cried with a loud voice, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. But you know what else happened during that time? This is bad, okay? Don't get me wrong, this is bad. But I, I read about a man named Stephen, first martyr, who was stoned to death. I can't imagine being stoned to death. Can you imagine those rocks hitting you and constantly pelting you and eventually to the point where you die? But you know what, G, what Stephen didn't experience as he died? He didn't experience being forsaken by God. Because when he looked up into the heavens, there was the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, standing at the right hand of his Father. Basically standing there with open arms to bring it home. Do you know what happened to Jesus on the cross? And I believe it occurred. We kind of get a glimpse of what happened during that three hours of darkness. At the end of it, about the ninth hour, he cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Man, I'm telling you, I dread experiencing pain. You know, I don't know what kind of death I'll experience. It may be a painful death. But as long as I've got somebody with me, that'll help it a little bit. Jesus had nobody with him. Jesus had no... Jesus, you know, as long as I know the Lord is there with me, He said He'll never leave me or forsake me, but God forsook His only Son. That's why He wept, as it were. That's why He wept in the garden and sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. Listen, Jesus wasn't some kind of sissy. <laughs> he was a, you know, he was a man. He was, he was, you know, we sometimes think about him as some kind of pasty-faced, long-haired uh, hippie dude that doesn't that just lays around all day. But listen, that's not what Jesus was. Jesus was a man. He's constantly going everywhere, walking. He was in great shape physically. He was able to. Uh, uh, he was in control of himself. He was in control of his circumstances. There's never a point where anybody got anything on Jesus. He never whined. He never complained. He never did anything by chance. Everything he did was a step. Every step he took was a step toward Calvary. And this physically fit specimen of a man was tortured to the point where you couldn't tell he was a man. And his father forsook him. That's why he was struggling so in Gethsemane. It wasn't because he was worried about all the pain and the suffering. Listen, if he were a man in a battle, you know Captain America? <laughs> you know, some of you like the Avengers movies? I like them. Captain America, listen, couldn't hold Jesus alive. Let me tell you something. Superman can't hold Jesus alive, okay? Jesus wasn't afraid of men. He wasn't afraid of what men would do to him. 
what he was struggling with is the fact that this man who was very God, who had never been out of fellowship with his father, had never had anything but perfect harmony among the three-part Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in the, in the moments on Calvary, that fellowship was broken. For God saw upon him, God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he became sin for us. And God cannot look upon sin. And he certainly cannot fellowship it. That's the price that was paid. You know what Peter calls it? He says it's the precious blood. The precious blood. He doesn't say it's some kind of halfway price or yeah, it's a pretty good deal. He says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. What he's saying here is, listen, remember your redemption isn't about you. You couldn't bring it. You couldn't pay for it. You don't have enough money. And plus your lifestyle is never going to fix it. You can't live good enough. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how bad you think you are. Your lifestyle is not going to get you to heaven or keep you out, praise God, because you're bought with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. I praise God he wasn't an afterthought. He didn't send Adam down here and create Adam and say, uh-oh, Adam is messed up. Now I've got to fix things. Let me, let me search through heaven and get somebody. No, he knew beforehand what Adam would do. He knew what would happen. He didn't cause it to happen, but he knew what would happen. And so before the foundation of the world, he ordained to save his people from their sins. And praise God on Calvary that exactly what he meant when he said it is finished oh praise the lord he didn't say i about got it done rest is up to you he didn't say i've done all i can do now you've got to do the rest he said it is finished and he cried with a loud voice because that was important you see this man whose life's blood was flowing out of him and and in most cases by this time of the crucifixion of any other person they would be so weak you could barely hear them but this was a man this was God who was fully man and man who was fully God and he cried out with a loud voice it is finished praise God it it was finished it was finished yes uh, the potter's field purchased on the day of or the day before Calvary the potter's field place of the outcast place of the hopeless, the friendless of the world. But praise God, Jesus is the friend of sinners. We're told that the Pharisees criticized him in Luke chapter 15, said, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Praise God. Because you see, I don't know about you, but most of the time I feel too much of an outcast to be able to in any way have fellowship with God. Oh, the things I've done, the things worse, the things I've thought. What an outcast. How hopeless I am in the world. By nature, beloved, we're like those that are, that are cast out into the potter's field. You know, the outcast, the broken vessels, marred by sin, but praise God, as the song says, there are no outcasts with God. There are no orphans with God. He is the friend of the friendless. For He made Him to become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. 
I looked it up as we bring this to a close. I looked it up. Um, that 30 pieces of silver that was the price that men placed on Jesus' life, today that would equal about $220. If, my, if, if what I looked up is correct. About $220. Potter's Field was purchased for about $220. And the value of those that were buried in the Potter's Field was much less than the $220 because you had... In New York City, there's a million buried there. Divide $220 by a million. Think about how little value those outcasts are to the world. But aren't we thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ, whose, whose body was valued at only 30 pieces of silver, $220, nonetheless, He placed an inestimable, inestimable value upon our lives. So much so that as our song says, He will not live in glory and leave us behind. So much so that whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Don't ever let anybody tell you this a chosen few. It's a number that no man can number. You count up, you count up how many how many you can number from birth to death and it's more than that, okay? It's more than that. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. We're born again by the Spirit of God. Whom He called, them He also justified. Praise God, He was headed to the cross even as the silver was tinkling on the floor of the, of the temple as Judas cast it down there and they were preparing to buy the potter's field with it. He was going to pay the price to justify His people and whom He justified them, He also glorified. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Not going to remodel heaven, but going by way of the cross to prepare a place for you. Now listen to this. That where I am, there you may be also. For if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. We may be members of the potter's fields of this world, but I'm thankful that the great potter himself designed to save those who otherwise are outcasts. He designed to be the friend of the friendless. And He deigned to come down into this sin-cursed world and to walk as a man being a man and to actually die a death on the cross that was completely sufficient to save His people from their sins. Oh, praise God, this Easter morning should be every morning. This Resurrection Sunday ought to be every Sunday because we ought to be thinking about how blessed we are to be able to walk in newness of life. Praise God. For the unsearchable riches of Christ. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.